You're listening to Money No Guess Enemy by Odoba Media. It is 1865 and Anlo is at war. Anlo is the part of modern-day southeastern Ghana occupied by the Ewe people. The Anlo warriors are fighting an opponent they have battled many times before, the Ada, with whom they vie for control of nearby salt work. Only this battle is different. The Ada have found new allies in the British, who have brought their warships over to Anlo and begun to shell coastal towns to smithereens. Among the Anlo troops is Nyaho Tamaklo. No one knows it yet, but in the major changes that are going to envelop Anlo over the next few decades, Nyaho Tamaklo will emerge as a successful political, social, and business leader in his time. By the time the Anlo people surrendered to British occupation in 1873, Tamaklo will be a respected combatant. He will be a commander of the left wing of the Anlo army. He will be one of the leaders who decides to end Anlo's costly battles with the British and come to peaceful terms. He will also become one of the wealthiest people in the region. But he won't be doing it alone. Having captured so many people in war over the years, Tamaklo will also have become a prolific slave owner. That is, until everything changes. This is Alex. And Mimi, and you're listening to Money No Get Enemy. Love it or hate it, everyone has to have it. We tell stories about the history of money in Africa and how this continent came to be known for its expressed lack of this thing called money. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Sandra Green about her research into the abolition of the slave trade in West Africa. We follow the story of one particular slaveholder, Nyahota Maklu, who lived in what is now southeastern Ghana, in a place called Anlo. Tamaklo's story is recorded in the book Slave Owners of West Africa by Dr. Sandra Green. Dr. Green currently works and teaches at Cornell University. She has been studying West African history for 40 years, and she was kind enough to talk to us about her research. I started working in the Anglo area in 1978, and I kept on going back to that same area over and over and over again. And the oral material was absolutely critical. European sources, they don't really know what's going on. You know, they're just recording things. Um, So I was able to, with the oral materials, I was able to map that onto some of the dates and the larger issues that were recorded that were of concern to the Europeans. and, And that made it's possible to put together the whole story. And so a picture of Tamaklo's life, as well as the time he was living in, comes into view. Enlo suffered huge losses in the six wars they fought between 1865 and 1873. Some people lost everything. Tamaklo lost two people he was very close to, a brother and a nephew. The troops he commanded also suffered extensive losses. As Dr. Green recounts, he was deeply and personally affected by the entire experience. In 1874, a year after British colonial rule began, a new shock rocked the region. Britain had gained more influence and they abolished slavery in West Africa. Popular stories often talk about Britain passing a policy to abolish the transatlantic slave trade in 1807 or the United States abolishment of slavery in 1865. 
But the history of enslavement in West Africa itself remains quite obscure to many people. For many people, it's okay to start, talk about the transatlantic slave trade, but it's not okay to talk about domestic slavery in Africa. Domestic slavery had existed in Africa for hundreds of years, as it had in many parts of the world. Many West African economies relied on it, as in every society with deep inequalities, there were those who opposed the imbalance of injustice of the system. But for the most part, slavery was a very accepted part of West African society and West African life for most of recorded history, for all of recorded history. By the 19th century, the slave trade had been abolished, so people who might have been sold in the Atlantic slave trade were redirected into the emerging domestic industries. They were put to work producing cash crops like palm oil. The new British colonial government disrupted daily life in Anlo in several ways, but no policy had more dramatic impact than the abolition of slaveholding in 1874. It would require restructuring of social and economic relationships. Well, no policy except maybe the demonetization of local currencies, but that's a story for another episode. It is important to note that the system of enslavement in West Africa was quite different from the one in the Americas, where millions of people were forcefully transported in the transatlantic slave trade. Of course, in all cases, enslaving a person essentially means depriving them of the human rights they would otherwise have had in their society. Dr. Green explains that systems of enslavement in the U.S. were more influenced by capitalism. It's not that capitalism and capitalist interest did not exist in West Africa, but there were other considerations that were important. In the U.S. system, the sole purpose of the system of enslavement was to increase production. This influenced the view that an enslaved person had no value or purpose other than what they could produce. It seems fair to say that the intense racism that completely dehumanized Black and African people also propped up the system. That's a really important item to note. While racism wasn't really an issue in West Africa, there were other philosophies that justified enslavement of certain populations. For example, some interpretations of Islam allow people to justify enslaving those who belong to a different religion. They're called infidels. And that language, this dehumanization of them, enabled people to justify enslaving these individuals. Um, many West African societies also enslaved people who were captured during war. And these wars were triggered by differences in culture or differing interests around trade or land, etc. Or they were sometimes explicit slave raids. And in fact, this is how Nyaho Tamaklo ended up with a large number of slaves. It was people that he had captured in the wars that he had fought in. And Dr. Green gave us some more context for the system of enslavement in West Africa. You have a range of, of, of practices. It could be very brutal. People who try to escape or who were difficult could be beaten. They could be chained. Uh, they could be, if a, a master got into debt, th that person could be sold to someone else with a master of, of unknown proclivities for violence, right? But you also had a system in which slaves were seen as an assets in so many other different ways. So if an individual was able to gain the trust of his or her master, 
that individual could also be given opportunities to trade on behalf of their master and make some money for themselves. If they were in a very hierarchical society, they could uh, become uh, attached to the royals, you know, and serve in their court as musicians, as uh, a whole variety of roles, all of which came, uh, gave them access to additional money and resources and uh, status and prestige. So the difference is, is that there was a different, there was a, a mix of concerns. It's not just about producing and making money. Slaves were also important for part of your retinue. That also meant that, and for trade purposes. So that also meant that um, you have a range of, of, of practices. You're listening to Money No Guess Enemy by Odoba Media. So the British had abolished the slave trade earlier in the 19th century. But as they start to conquer places like Anlo and gain more influence in West Africa, they make it illegal to hold slaves in the parts of the region that they controlled. But this perception that African slaves weren't treated so badly led them to believe that the ab abolishing slavery in Anlo would have very little impact. They were under the impression that the system of enslavement was mild and enslaved people in Anlo were quite content with where they were. Remember, the British did not want to disrupt production of goods. This was one of their primary motivations for conquering this region. And though they passed the policy, they didn't really go out of their way to enforce it. But contrary to British expectations, once word spread that enslaved people were legally allowed to take their freedom, they did. Thousands of enslaved people left their ex-slave owners and went home if they knew where home was. Others left to seek economic opportunities in cities and towns that were coming up because the British were building railroads. There were all of a sudden all these opportunities to work on farms and be paid for it. Some of those who had been farming renegotiated deals with their ex-owners so they could continue to farm the lands for themselves. Some slave owners reacted to abolishment violently and aggressively. However, most of them reluctantly adapted. Many of them recognized their former slaves as members of their family even though they treated them a little bit differently and they were considered perhaps like lesser class. And this granted previously enslaved people's status as free people. It also retained them as part of their slave owner's retinues, which was something that Dr. Green mentioned earlier. It was one of the main reasons for accumulating slaves in the first place is that it gave you this wealth in people, this power and influence that you ha someone had with having a big family or a big a large number of people under your influence. This was one of the better outcomes for former slave owners because as family members, previously enslaved people would continue to contribute a degree of free labor to their various enterprises. And between 1879 and 1909, Tamaklo was busy. He had his hands in so many businesses and social activities. He traded in indigo blue yarn, in gunpowder, guns, and cartridges, in copra, a raw material for coconut oil. He bought land and buildings and rented it out to merchants and immigrants. He lent out money and collected interest. 
He opened three traditional religious centers, but he also supported local churches and he supported local schools and he was influential in local politics when he took interest. He is remembered in oral histories for saying, Yevu kutsa dewodya nutsi. The Europeans are like sponge. They make your skin smooth. He sounds like a very industrious capitalist. He really, he has his hand, wherever the money is, he, he's there. Um, he also seems to really be greasing the social wheels to ensure that his businesses are doing well or his trade interests are doing well. And he's really adapting to the times. Like there's pr probably a lot of opportunity that came up once the British colonial government took over. Yes, a lot of things changed and a lot of people um, were financially ruined as a result, but he is taking advantage. Exactly. I don't know whether he would have identified as a capitalist, but he certainly takes advantage of the more capitalist system that the British, he embraces it. It seems like he embraces it and, and uses it to his benefit. <clears throat> on, and on top of all this, by the 1890s, Dr. Green reports that he was also a major figure in the fight to end the stigma associated with slave descent. So this is where all his extra activity around after abolition comes in. He didn't just bring enslaved, previously enslaved people into his family. He treated them better than most other ex-slave owners did. Tamaklo offered all of his children to go to school and this would have been, meant getting a Western education, for better or for worse, for free. He paid for it. And this was over a hundred boys and girls. Tamakla went out of his way to get previously enslaved people who were settled in uh, village regions. People had been previously enslaved to him who were settled in village regions. Um, he went out of his way to get their leaders the status of Hanuo, or village leader, which gave them equal status to village leaders of free descent and made them more recognizable under the British system as heads of their communities. And according to oral histories, Tamaklo, in his everyday, his personal preferences and treatment of his family, didn't distinguish between enslaved and free members. Is it fair to say that these choices are very uncommon? Because I imagine most previous slave owners obeyed abolishment in practice, but not in spirit. Sure, of course, they might have complied with the new norm that it was forbidden to reference whether someone had slave ancestry or slave owning ancestry for that matter. In theory, this would have helped to level the playing field and avoid discrimination and conflict. But in practice, people did not forget. People kept track. People developed secret signals for knowing whether someone was of slave ancestry or not. And, you know, in the process of getting married in Nigeria, for instance, there's a tradition of like sending people to the person's village to ask around and figure out what their family and their ancestry has been like. And I'm sure these conversations are part of it. This is a dynamic that wasn't just in Anlo's happened in Nigeria to other parts of West Africa. Exactly. And as you might expect, after abolition, there was still plenty of conflict and discrimination. In the years after abolition, the British court systems were full of cases between masters and previously enslaved people who were disagreeing about what rights they each had under the new system. Exactly. And Tamakla was one of the few slave owners who supported the right of formerly enslaved people to sue those who abused them because of their slave origins. 
So once again, Tamako's position, not the norm. To this day, there are old policies in Ghana that limit what roles previously enslaved people can take. And very occasionally, someone still calls upon them. Uh, most societies had laws that uh, restricted what you could and could not do with enslaved people. Yeah, actually, as recently as 1995, someone invoked such a law to keep um, a political aspirant out of office, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court in Ghana. The person was of slave ancestry, and he was not allowed to take on a leadership position in modern-day Ghanaian society, which is wild. It's wild. Yeah, the dynamics, I wonder if the Supreme Court would rule differently today or not, but the law's on the books. I think what this goes to show is that there are still the legacy of this slave system of enslavement lingers. You're listening to Money No Get Enemy by Adoba Media. We don't know for sure what Nyaho Tamako's motivations for his actions were. And it's important maybe to name this because... He was a slave owner. His choices suggest he may have changed his attitude towards the justice of enslavement after abolition. But we can't attribute motive to him from where we are today. His reaction to abolition may also have been influenced by his desire to keep his family, his business, and his community running smoothly. So he wanted to make sure that these people who were part of his business dealings were going to stick around. In either case, I think it's important that we hear this story. The recent economic histories of Europe, of Africa, and of the American continents are intimately intertwined due to the transatlantic slave trade, and then due to colonialism, And today, these new levels of globalization that have all of us so hyper-connected, and yet the complexities, the intricacies, the highs and lows of West African history are too often ignored. Unfortunately, these types of oral histories that Dr. Green has collected from members of these families that are public historians, really, and have preserved these histories are not very common. I guess I'm wondering also, what was the reception like within the mm-hmm. academic community for this type of work? I would say it was largely, it's largely been silence. Hmm. Because people know how sensitive it is. Um, despite the fact that I've gotten permissions and worked with the families, I think a lot of academics are, and I would say particularly uh, academics from Africa, are particularly sensitive about this topic. Many of them are, in fact, a lot of them are, that it's going to open up conversations that are going to lead in unpredictable ways. You can imagine that uh, branches of family will set, will then probe, you know, uh, about all kinds of historical past and bring up all kinds of perhaps grievances. You see what I'm saying? Of course, there has been for decades um, a strong interest in trying to build solidarity between 
Africans in America and Africans on the continent. And to recognize that in fact, there were slave owners in Africa, just like there, that, but they were African, but they were like slave owners in the Americas does not lend itself to that kind of, of uh, solidarity, which is based on ignoring certain things yes. in order to uh, try not to create divisions. But it's my, it's my belief that it's better, the history is there. It's better to get it out and to grapple with it and then move on than to try to suppress it. And then it's always there kind of bubbling up under the surface that could be, that could emerge at some unpredictable time. Yeah. For me, there's also a question of accountability. A lot of these families are still quite wealthy and still retain power. And how much continuity is there that we're not acknowledging in terms of these exploitative practices, I think it's so important to discuss. Maybe that's something we can talk about. What do you see as sort of the legacy of these institutions that persist in the continent? You know, it's one area that I was have been particularly interested in somebody pursuing. It gets around to the issues of class and class divisions. And what are the basis for those class divisions? It's an extremely sensitive subject. As much as slavery is an, uh, a, a, a sensitive subject, and it's one that academics tend to kind of tiptoe around. Uh, people who are not from these African countries have to get permission to uh, work in these communities. That means that the powers that be have to welcome them. And so uh, non-African academics who work in Africa aren't necessarily feel comfortable in a sense raising these issues. And you've got the same patronage and hierarchy within African countries, which also um, would make academics from those countries hesitant to address it also. It's about power and money. Right. And power coupled with can really make life difficult for everybody. If you're trying to say, uh, maybe we need to look at where this money came from. So these are major obstacles that Dr. Green is describing and major ethical considerations. We wanted to know more about how she did her research in ANLO. And so, again, it built up a level of familiarity and trust, which allowed me to get into some of these intimate details. So, for example, the one uh, man who, uh, Amagashi, who was of slave origin, that's a very sensitive topic. I had been in communication with the family for some time. I had interviewed different family members. And when I wrote that particular chapter, knowing how sensitive it was, it basically I sent that chapter to the man who was the family historian, the historian for that family. Uh, I had been sending him whatever information I had about, you know, his ancestors, family members, old family members, he had been sending me. So we had been exchanging information all along. And then when I wrote that chapter and I realized that his ancestor was of slave descent. I sent him a draft to the chapter and I said, I know how sensitive this is. I'm not going to publish it unless you give me permission. And uh, he gave me permission. 
if he had not given me permission, uh, you wouldn't have seen a book. <laughs> it's already a small book, right? But this was one critical chapter. And so, uh, again, this is not a technique that is typical for uh, historians or anthropologists. Um, they want they want to uh, share things, but very rarely will you find someone giving uh, the people who you're writing about permission to either uh, ax it, that it will never be published, or it will be published. But I felt that given the topic, that it was very important to do that. And we're glad Dr. Green did this work, and that the Tamaklo family and others who are mentioned in the book are courageous enough to not only preserve this history, but also to take the steps to share their stories. It's a challenging history, and there are many reasons to want to leave it in the past. But as we see from these stories, the legacy of slavery persists in West Africa. So how do we move forward if we don't acknowledge this past? Find out more next time when Money No Guess Enemy returns. This podcast is brought to you by Odoba Media. Filling in the blanks in the history of our world. You can listen to Money No Get Enemy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.